my talk will uh, go center around three main points, which are uh, from the chapter. I talk a little bit about uh, the region, the context, uh, you know, the, uh, basically looking at uh, just the main features of what's going on in the region, especially when it relates to inequality. I talk about the, the content, which is AI in MENA. Uh, we focus on data infrastructure and people, and then I'll uh, conclude with a few uh, tensions that shape the debate. Uh, so starting by uh, a region in flux with multifaceted inequality. It is important to realize that when we talk about uh, AI and inequality, what is new here? Inequality is not new. It's always been there in the region. It expands and it increases. When you think about AI as a technology, it, it seems, yes, there are new technologies, but the debate over AI inequality and inclusion is actually not new. It is a magnified version of the earlier debates on information communication technology. First, it started as ICT and growth, ICT and development, ICT for development, and now people are talking about AI for D, AI for development. So this is important when we think of general purpose technologies that are pervasive, that are really prevalent, uh, that affect our lives in many different ways. Uh, this is a, a point I wanted to just put uh, in the beginning. So when we look at the uh, MENA region, I, I focus on the Arab countries. So I do not cover uh, Iran or Israel. And basically, uh, the, the, the classification that I used was one used by the, by the World Bank, but it's really uh, quite straightforward and simple. You think of it as you have the rich oil countries, so it's not a homogeneous region. You have the oil-rich uh, states, the Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia. And then you have basically everybody else, uh, the middle and lower income countries. Some of them are rich in resources, but the dividing line, the differentiator, is actually the resource being resource-rich, but also being labor-abundant. So countries of the Gulf, uh, Saudi, uh, are actually are rich in, in natural resources, but uh, they have scarce labor, and usually they would import uh, human resources, as opposed to countries in the middle. So you have like Egypt, Lebanon, Tunisia, Morocco, uh, Jordan. These are countries that are middle-income countries and at the same time are abundant with labor. And then come the countries that are at the lower end of the scale. The countries are different, yet they do have commonalities. And I will focus on two main commonalities for, uh, for the com different countries of the region. One of them is that it is a youthful region. I don't know how many of you have I've seen this before, the idea of a population pyramid. Um, basically, it is a classification of the population by age group, telling us how, what is the percentage of people between certain age cohorts. So you start from zero to four. It is a bit of a noisy uh, slide. I have a few of those for the Arab world, but they tell a story. The picture tells a story. The blue are the males, the pink are females, which is a very gender, you know, I'd rather use different colors. But at the end of the day, if the pyramid looks really triangular, it's telling you that the majority of the population are at the lower end of the age group. So this is a region, if you look at the averages total, this is a region that has one third of its people less than 15 years of age, another third between 15 and 21. So if you cut at the 25 years of age, you have 50%. So this is important. This is a region, a youthful region, has plenty of young people who will actually own the future for better or for worse. And this is an important point. Extreme in countries like this, and, and you have Egypt, and you look at Jordan and Palestine, it really is a pyramid, which telling you that the majority is at the very young age. All right? If I, when we move to the countries in the middle, so these are, again, an apologize, a bit noisy, but I wanted to put all of them for you to see. We have Algeria, we have, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we have Algeria, we have Tunisia, we have, uh, uh, you know, Morocco, and you have 
again, there is a youth bulge, and that's important. The fact that they, it's usually the youth, even in the, if there is this dent in, the, in, in between, but it's always increasing at the lower end of the scale. Countries of the Gulf have an interesting uh, image. The males are more, and you have sort of the 20s to, to 40s. And this is actually to a great extent because it includes uh, migrants as well. So you will have uh, human capital that come and work as you know, in very different fields, usually mostly males in this part of the world. So the first point, it is a youth region. And as an anecdote to that, or as a side point to that, it is a region with high rates of youth unemployment. And that's in a country, that, in actual region, that has gone through a political turmoil and still is. This is a, a, something to flag. Youth unemployment rates are very high. Uh, also, we have uh, unemployment of the educated. So, uh, in fact, the rates for youth unemployment you'll find sometimes reaches uh, uh, almost 50% or 40% in some parts of the Arab world. But you also look at um, unemployment, uh, yeah, unemployment of the educated. So you'll find university graduates who are unable to find work, and that's problematic. And I've done field work on uh, Uber uh, drivers and a sample of the 1,000 plus drivers, 96% of the sample had a, a high school or more, and more than 50% had university degrees. And they cannot find work. So this is also telling you that in this part of the world, it is about youth, 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 youth. Then we have, again, information on uh, statistics on employment by gender, unemployment by gender, female, uh, high rates of female unemployment, and the typical uh, story in, in the global south, in developing countries, and Egypt, I mean, Egypt and the rest of the Arab world are no exception, having a informal sector contributing significantly to the uh, economies. So people working outside, and this is important for AI and data, and I'll come back to this, outside the radar of the national statistics. That's important. So first commonality is the youth and the characteristics that characterizes the employment uh, scenario. The second uh, commonality is actually a sort of the stance on freedom and African S as a plural. Uh, this is a quote from uh, the Arab Knowledge Report 2009, which I contributed to among uh, my colleagues. I was one of the core team members. And I'll probably just read it off the screen because uh, it says, generally speaking, it can be said that change in the actual situation of freedoms in the region has been confined to an improvement in economic freedoms. An analogous improvement in political and intellectual freedoms, uh, democratic pursuits, and freedom of expression has not occurred. This was in 2009. One of the messages of this report, which I wrote, is that we cannot have uh, uh, an uh, asymmetric approach to freedoms. We need to have integrated set of freedoms to promote Arab knowledge and development. So what really, uh, what you will find is that whenever there is an expansion of freedoms, it is for the economic, for businesses, for investments, which ends up being large businesses in an, under a neoliberal approach. When it comes to freedom of expression, civil liberties, there isn't this much enthusiasm. You will see this in the statistics. So um, I chose the Heritage Index of Economic Freedom, which uh, actually uh, focuses on key aspects um, like rule of law, government size, regulatory efficiency, and market openness. And you will look at how the figures, where the region compares to the global average. And interestingly enough, actually, up till 2009, 2010, the region liberties, the economic liberties were lower than uh, global average, but they actually increased. So it seems that these are, you know, this is a region that's performing well on economic uh, freedoms. 
If we look at the uh, same time, at, I picked the democracy index of the economic intelligence uh, unit, and you find a very different scenario. The region is the green line. It is the worst performing uh, region of the world. And without, I mean, the global average is somewhere up here. So there is no, I mean, the, the mismatch between approach to freedoms is very clear. Uh, these are just a few more statistics. Again, the EIU index, uh, we have the region compared to the rest of the, of the world. It's always less than the rest of the world on the components of the democracy index. And on the even, uh, it is the lowest performing region as far as uh, democracy. I just picked one. When we did the Arab knowledge report, we picked quite a few. We had, you know, the reporters uh, uh, without borders, the, the freedom of media, etc. Just uh, one more point about that. Uh, among the top 10 performers in the latest uh, index of economic freedom, we find the United Arab Emirates as number nine. And you find, uh, you find uh, actually Qatar as uh, 28, among the top performers globally. Now, if you move to the uh, EIU, Democracy Index, you'll find the same countries ranking 147 and 133. So the, the position on, on um, economic freedoms versus civil liberties is very important. It's very different. And this is a characteristic of the region. So I go back to the commonalities. I focus on what happens to the youth. I focus on what happens to freedoms. And this has repercussions on the political economy of the region, especially when we talk about technology. This, I think, is a picture that should uh, ring bells to everyone. The, the uprisings, the Arab Spring, the picture from Egypt I put myself when I was at the square, the picture from Tunisia is taken from Twitter, and the Creative Commons licensing, so I made sure I, get, I got uh, all pictures uh, licensed. The, I think it's important to know that at the time where the Arab Spring happened in Egypt and Tunisia, GDP growth was doing very well. These countries were described, where the IMF and the, the Washington consensus, they were very happy with their performance, which is very telling because income growth was doing very well, but was, was, what was missing from the formula is actual real data on what is happening on the ground, the reality. Nobody predicted the Arab Spring. Everybody was surprised, right? And this feeds straight into what we are discussing today. It is about how can data actually capture what goes on in the ground and the failure of statistics. Trickle-down economics have failed, but also statistics have failed the way they are the methodology of collecting data on inequality has failed to, to show the real picture uh, in, in the real world. So the, the growth rate of Egypt was 5.1% when this happened. Uh, Tunisia was 3.5%. And there, you know, we had people uh, revolting in the street. Something was wrong. Uh, at the same time, uh, clearly, the, the use of technologies, adoption of technologies were increasing. Uh, mobile cellular uh, subscriptions, uh, you know, uh, uh, internet connections. In the, again, the region was increasing, doing well compared to the rest of the world. Uh, on mobile technologies, on um, just the, the use of mobile and uh, the dual use of the technology. I mean, everybody at the time, the use of taking pictures and, and the role that the technology played contributing to the uh, collaboration of, of the people in bringing in about change, or at least going out there to bring about change. This is a graph that we did this morning. So uh, I would have liked it, you know, OCD me, I would have liked it to be <laughs> put in order, but at least it gives you an idea again about internet use as a percentage of the population in MENA. And there is an increase between 2014, 2017. So connectivity is increased on the rise. The connections, there's a problem with the speed of the connection and the prices. It's still an expensive internet, but people are having access. 
So still, we have a digital divide by um, age, by income, by gender, by education, by geography. So inequality, at the end of the day, is not just an inequality of wealth. It is multifaceted, it's complex, it's layered. It's, uh, it's an inequality of opportunity, basically, uh, uh, because really people will, the social mobility is not, uh, is not really uh, possible for many, and people end up still remaining within the circles where they started. Inequality by uh, income, by gender, ethnicity, social background, education, access to health services, digital access and use, employment, living conditions, geography, and political participation. So inequality is really, it has so many layers, and measuring inequality by the genius coefficients like my fellow economists do misses a lot of things, just by looking at the percentage of incomes that people make. And I will come back to this in a minute. So data has failed to capture all of this, and this is what takes me to talk a little bit about AI, data, infrastructure, and thinking. Now comes this new technology that we are all learning about, you know, uh, the, the data that goes into the algorithms, and the algorithms, the machines are becoming smart by the day, they are learning, and they are predicting, and all of these new technologies that you cannot keep up with, and you're trying to understand. So, uh, data is the mind, it is really where the starting point of, of using the technology. And uh, what I outline in the chapter are a set of challenges uh, in the data in the region. First, the, there is a dearth of data about the region in general, data quality data as well. It's very hard to find data, data uh, there are a number of challenges that I classify under uh, the following. First, there is asymmetry, there is who owns the data. It's usually the large companies, which is the same situation as it is in, in the developed world. You know, the, there's always the Ubers, the Facebooks, the, the Googles. But the problem here is that it, in, a, in countries where there are weak institutions and already market concentration is taking place, antitrust is not well developed, it is an added layer of a barrier to entry. If companies cannot have access to data, they really are not able to, to function easily. I'll give you an example of the of the traffic data, for example. Uh, this, this logo here is called Biullak, which is the, the translation, Arabic translation of sign and sell. And it is the traffic uh, advice, which is great. It is a startup started by uh, youth. They developed the app where people, they crowdsource data on traffic. And Cairo has a major traffic problem. So it offered an alternative that where actually data is collected rounds up. So crowdsourcing of data is uh, actually a ray of hope and is an alternative that is used by small companies in trying to find, business, build businesses around that, data-driven innovation. So Biolak is an example. The opposite then is another example where uh, it was in an interview with a data analytics startup uh, in Egypt. Uh, the, the young chap I spoke to, brilliant, brilliant guy, he, he told me that the labs health data that is available for labs in Egypt, you know, like test, that test, said they are sitting on 70% of the health data of the country. But they will not give it away. And he said, how we would love to take that data and to, with respect to privacy and you know, following all the ethics that, that are needed, if we could get this data and use it in order to improve the health services and improve the situation, it would be fantastic. But as a small company, there is no way I would have access to this data from the large, large labs. And they don't know what to do with it. That's his, his frustration. So these are anecdotes which, is, uh, which I just wanted to share with you. So first is asymmetry and market power, but also, and perhaps more seriously, the data lock by the states. 
by national statistics. Um, data, you know, national statistics are, are owned by the state, they're gated, they're politicized. Um, data can be incomplete, censored. The, the, the interpretation of national security is very broad. So what data would be released and what wouldn't, which is a limitation on, uh, you know, on the availability. Um, in a recent study by, by the, uh, the Open Data Barometer, it was found that 1.48% of data in the Arab world is open. And even though 71% of data is available, it is not made, uh, it is limited by technical and or legal barriers. So uh, available, for example, in PDF format. So it's not open data that lends itself to use and reuse and sharing, etc. Next comes the inaccuracy of the data, the blur. You know, what you would get uh, in, in aggregates. When you have aggregates, it, cl it clouds out all granulations. You don't know, that's why I like the population pyramids, because it tells you male, female, different age group, that's disaggregated data. But usually you would get data in the aggregate. And an example of that was uh, when, when the um, devaluation of the pound, the floating of the Egyptian pound took place in November 2016, what was, being assessed was the economy as a whole, or you know, uh, consumers. It was not done by income level, for example. It's the, the burden really falls very hard on the less privileged cohorts of the economy. At the end of the day, it is women and the informal sector and the marginalized who would become more marginalized given uh, uh, a situation like this. So the, the, the lack of disaggregated data by income level, by gender, and what I call is data myopia, because basically what happens is that the methodology that is used is very short-sighted. And an example of that is the Gini coefficient. It just measures percentages of income to percentages of population. Okay, so you're only looking top-down at the incomes that, are, that you see just right there. You're, you're missing out on a lot of details. The methodology itself is, is uh, lacking. And an example of that is the failure to predict anything to do with the Arab Spring and the incredible inequality that actually promoted people to go out on the street. Another uh, source of, of blindness is blindness to informality. Informal dwellings uh, constitute uh, an important part of reality of, of this part of the world. Cairo, one third of Cairo's housing is informal dwellings. And when I started uh, researching, I found figures from Morocco. You have also uh, 23%. We have in Lebanon. Uh, and in Saudi Arabia, even in the richer countries of the region, informal dwellings exist. So where are these from the national statistics? They're not part of national statistics. And this is very dangerous because if we're going to use artificial intelligence for policy making, algorithms that enter the data, makes predictions and policy uh, you know, uh, recommendations, these things are completely out of the radar of national policy making. And if they have always been out of the radar, then it becomes even magnified because now there will be policies, assuming if the technology is properly used, there will be policies that will actually promote wellness and to promote better government services when these people are completely out of the system. We've looked oil earlier at informal uh, workers as well, the informal sector, uh, which I showed earlier. This is Cairo, and this picture is very nice because it shows a contrast between the informal dwellings and one of the you know, large modern uh, buildings, uh, the, the towers, you know, and it is the tower that will be at the radar of the, of the you know, national statistic. This, the other dwellings, they're, they're not. Some of the utilities, for example, in order to apply for uh, a safety net uh, program that is done in Egypt, you have to provide an electricity utility. 
But what if you are taking electricity informally from your neighbor or from the, you know, from the street or, from, you know? So you're not going to qualify. It's, it's not great, but it's reality. And it, the important thing is to address reality and work grounds up rather than just look, you know, top down. So in talking about data, it is important to think of an enabling environment. Uh, the objective is always to have openness and access, uh, you know, uh, so uh, this is sort of a, a diagram we put together just summarizing um, the different policies related directly to data. So um, Morocco, Jordan, and Tunisia are part of the Open Government uh, Program. Uh, the FOIA, Freedom of Information, we have only in Lebanon, uh, Tunisia, uh, Lebanon and Tunisia, Palestine has a draft law. Egypt, Jordan, and Morocco have a constitutional right, but no FOIA, and I have worked on drafting FOIA uh, Egypt and I have, I can, I'm happy to talk more about this in the Q&A. Uh, data protection, uh, there's Tunisia, Morocco, Jordan has a draft law, Qatar, United Emirates, and Bahrain, they have laws. A privacy law, only Lebanon. Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco have constitutional rights. So it's still, this, the legislation, the enabling environment is still at its infancy. And it is really a question of political willingness. Is there willingness to take this up or not? And I go back to the issue of freedoms, you know. Whenever there is talk of FOIA, and I've seen this firsthand, it, it will go through if we're talking about promoting investment. You know, investors want data, investors want information. But when it comes to journalists, you know, citizens, then it is a different story. So it just, it hasn't gone through anyway yet. So um, moving on, so I've talked a bit about data, and let me just uh, say you know, a few thoughts about the infrastructure, and again, I have to learn what is the infrastructure for artificial intelligence. And I grouped it under issues related to data storage and computing and the algorithm. Uh, data storage and computing, I interviewed uh, uh, people who are in the field companies, but also professors of computer science. And it was very interesting because I got different views, you know. Uh, the argument here is that data storage and computing requires uh, a lot of um, uh, heavy, uh, in, in the infrastructure requires a lot of computing capability. You need, you know, like large data storage centers, you need, uh, uh, you know, you need uh, strong computing capabilities, but then the other side will tell you, this is, uh, you can have this uh, at the cloud, in the cloud. Why make a fuss, you know, you can just store everything on the cloud. So then the one side would say, yes, but this is expensive and companies cannot, small companies cannot allow it. So the other side will say, well, it offers an alternative rather than having to set up your own system. So I got, you know, there are two sides of the story and uh, there's also the question of internet capability because if you're storing your uh, content on using the cloud for computing and data storage, you need very strong internet. So then the counter argument will say, well, you don't always have to be working on the internet. You can work offline and then upload it. So it's, you know, there, it's a conversation that I am learning and then I put down in the chapter and I'm still, I'm happy to learn about this more from people in computer science uh, in the cloud. Uh, then there is the algorithm, which is fascinating because uh, the more I read about this and the more I, I questioned and learned, it reminded me as a student of econometrics, of the uh, models of econometrics that they did. When we enter data, we develop a model, and we make conclusions and predictions. There are similarities, but I think the, the, the problem here is that the, looking at the algorithm as a black box, a black box that, you know, that is um, created by uh, experts, that is done by experts to, uh, to model a certain uh, issue using, so the data goes in, there is the algorithm, 
to uh, you know create uh, uh, predictions and conclusions, etc. So who who works who creates that algorithm? Uh, it, it is really problematic if this is created without the end users being involved. Also, it is very uh, problematic if, for example, you're looking at an algorithm for health services without a health expert involved. So you need to have a conversation. You need to have your different stakeholders at the table developing a solution for a problem rather than it being uh, you know, a, a model that is created by technical experts. What I also learned and fascinated me is that there are open source algorithms, which I always thought would be great because open source is available, you can use it, you know. But they said no, because this is generic. And unless you adapt the algorithm to your context, it can be very dangerous because, again, it cannot be suitable for your own surroundings. So these are issues that I'm learning about, that everybody's talking about, and I am not exaggerating if I tell you I, I sit in a, in a meeting and, and listen to opposing views, and even in conferences, when you listen to experts, you can hear opposing views about the same story. So we're trying to understand this, but at the end of the day, it is very important to, to humanize the algorithm. It is not about a model that is um, you know, new and dry and generic that you take and, you know, data in, data out, because it would be garbage in, garbage out. And at the end of the day, those who will pay the price are the ones who are at the lower end of the scale. If you, you don't want to use technology to marginalize. Technologies can have, you know, uh, there is a paradox in their capability, which I will come to uh, in a little while. Of course, there's also the trade secrets. If we're talking about intellectual property, trade secrets are also part of the algorithm and can be a reason why the, the blockage of this content from the users uh, of the so having uh, then moved to data infrastructure, then we talk a little bit about people. Um, and, okay. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, just one example about uh, algorithms. Uh, there is also a, a very interesting example is in the um, in Palestine. There is uh, the users of people are very. Uh, 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 I'm not welcoming for the use of facial recognition technologies because they they fear that the use of these technologies could be used against them for purposes that are beyond what they were intended for. So that's another aspect of, of the algorithm in the sense that sometimes uh, the, the, under the pretext of using an algorithm in any authoritative uh, government, in any government anywhere in the world, that it can be used for their own purpose. And it is this black box that you cannot really go and, and you know, detangle and understand uh, what is happening uh, under it. So uh, moving on then to uh, talk a little bit about people. Everybody's talking about the fear of uh, AI and the job loss and you know, the skills. And, and this is a conversation that's happening everywhere in the world. The general understanding is that people at the very high end of the scale will always, of, this, of the skill level, will always have, you know, be able to find place for themselves and their, you know, their work will not be replaced. And people at the uh, sort of the handicraft or the, you know, the example is the manicurist. You know, you will never get an AI to be a manicurist or a craft artist, maybe a craft artist. But it is the jobs in the middle that are at stake of, of at the risk of being lost. You know, jobs, middle skills, jobs. And you have a lot of those in, in this part of the world. A, a clear example is the call centers. That's, that's one of the first that's going to go. So one of the actually sources of, of incomes for in Egypt and in other parts in, of, the, of the global south actually where the services offered by call centers for 
for international organizations, that's going to work. And usually, the, the people who work there are young, educated, uh, you know, men and women, graduates of universities, and that is, a, you know, something that should really flag out. So there is a, a, a need for reskilling of labor to introduce these, uh, you know, skills, data skills, and um, capabilities for that part um, of the world. Uh, basically, uh, twenty. <coughs> excuse me. The good news is that the countries um, that, uh, uh, you know, some of the countries are on, have, do have high percentages of high skill uh, employment and uh, uh, formal education. So you have Egypt, Emirates, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Tunisia are actually at the forefront of, uh, of the skill uh, attainment. And um, basically you have um, an interesting, uh, this is a visual of the World Economic Forum had the recent um, summit uh, at the Dead Sea in Amman, and it was about the fourth industrial revolution in MENA. And they invited, the, uh, they chose 100 startups, you know, the most successful startups in the region, and I was giving a talk about the region, and I asked uh, the gentleman who's helped me to map it using their, uh, you know, their um, uh, platform. And these are the countries that, by the, the, the color, the darker the color, the more the number of companies. These were the countries that, that really where the 100 startups came from. And it coincides with data on the high skill in the Middle East, you know, the five countries. It's Jordan, Egypt, Emirates, Saudi, and Tunisia. So these are the countries that are at the uh, forefront of the skill level attainment, if you will, given, of course, the very different um, uh, capabilities. The Emirates and Saudi are completely different uh, level of you know, uh, financial resources as opposed to the other three countries. Uh, one of the, um, uh, um, you know, <coughs> excuse me, an important issue that was, that I heard from more than one of those startups, actually in particular, is the idea of uh, retention and brain drain. They have an issue that skilled workers, their teams are constantly moving over, turnover. Either they go uh, to uh, Silicon Valley, or they go to Europe, or to the Gulf, to the United Arab Emirates or even get hired by Microsoft and, you know, co and large companies in their own countries. So this is a problem, retaining skills and retaining their very few and they are in demand. And there is a need for more skilled people. You know, there is already a pool of skilled workers, but there is a need definitely for reskilling uh, at a very high, uh, you know, very high level. The rays of hope for the region come from the entrepreneurship. So it's not all that uh, bleak. There is a fantastic, um, energy coming from youth entrepreneurs, uh, you know, some females actually. Uh, there is also um, a lot of uh, the data-driven innovation activities. Uh, the good news also is that the region has a basic education attainment that is uh, it's quite, uh, you know, um, uh, significant. Uh, you know, uh, Bahrain, for example, has 17% with basic education attainment reaching uh, the global level. Half of those educated do have degrees in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, so in the, you know, the array of hope comes from entrepreneurship, from the basic skills, the potential for young people, which is just like calling to be uh, utilized and capitalized on and encouraged. And you feel the energy when you attend events with those young people activities. There's a need, there's so much that could be done for them. Whether it's happening or not is another issue. 
another ray of hope comes from the open data initiatives, new ways of collecting data from the, those businesses or from civil society or from academia. We have done a lot of work uh, at the center uh, that are at the American University in Cairo, the Access to Knowledge for Development, working with civil society and with the private sector in encouraging several projects, uh, data, crowdsourcing data on, on, um, on the ring road for Cairo and you know, anticipating where are the blind spots and where are the informal stops and what could this lead to policy implication for the government to actually plan the road in a better, more you know, realistic way that caters to the people's needs because people take matters in their own hands. They create their own bus stops you know, they, and they write them to you on. So this is an example. We have our partners in Birzeit University have done work on uh, air pollution uh, around schools. Uh, in Morocco, also um, uh, work on the on traffic. We've done in, in uh, at AOB in Lebanon work on uh, health data for women. There is an initiative called Harass Map in, in Egypt where uh, crowdsourced data on uh, you know uh, female harassment of, of women. So these these are ways of hope because this this is happening. People are trying to create alternative and innovative ways of collecting data, crowdsourcing, putting it up, uh, you know, sharing it, and this is great. And there are, uh, you know, some some government initiatives. Clearly, the United Arab Emirates is taking strides in this field. They have an own minister of artificial intelligence. They have uh, initiatives to train uh, government employees to, uh, you know, uh, teach AI in schools from grade one, teach ethics of AI in schools. Uh, so these are all, you know very good initiatives. Uh, there is now talk about uh, AI strategy for Egypt. We did work as an, you know, an academic center trying to review AI strategies in other uh, countries and recommending uh, to the government. To our surprise, we learned that it has been happening but not announced. And, uh, but we, you know, we were fortunate to have the advisor to the minister at one of our events and we hope that we said we, we said we're here to help you. We'll give you our research, you know, whatever so that this can happen. We still yet to wait and see what happens. Tunisia also has an AI strategy that has not been announced yet. So between the you know, entrepreneurship, the novel, the initiatives, the some government initiatives, we hope that this could bring uh, some uh, hope. So um, just to, uh, you know, after talking about the region, about a bit of you know, the intricacies of AI, let me just take some time in the conclusion to highlight three tensions which I think shape the, the discourse of this. They shape the discussion and they will shape the way the future of this region will, will be in this area, in AI for inclusion um, and inequality. So uh, first, let me say the discourse over AI inequality is really intertwined with the unique political, economic, and social context. The dynamics of AI and its impact on uh, inclusion um, or inequality are embedded in the region's complexities. At the heart, it's also sit at the heart of these three tensions. So the first tension is the paradox. The technology, AI as a technology, just like information communication technology, it has the capability of moving us in the opposite direction. So it can actually, uh, 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 also borrowing from physics, you know, the centrifugal and centripetal forces. So you can have technology can actually move you away from the center, can empower uh, the less fortunate, can empower small business, small players, gives a voice, political voice, economic voice. You can start your business, you know, and, and comp companies can concentrate on their core 
competencies and outsource part of their service to uh, this man who died, you know, uh, next door. So there is a chance for small businesses to, to uh, uh, you know, thrive. There is a step, presumably, a step closer to the textbook uh, definition of perfect competition. You know, many buyers, many sellers, uh, barriers to entry is going down because you can start a business, presumably. Uh, this is, in a general sense, anywhere in the world. So there is hope and potential for moving you away from the center, for creating more horizontal you know, economies, more equal economies, empowering the marginalized. But also, uh, there is a potential for the other way around. And you look around us, and you know you can see the large players getting you know more uh, you know perpetuated. Their hierarchies are more perpetuated. They are uh, you know they really you know uh, strengthening their um, their positions. And it's in no small part. First, we were talking about this argument in terms of intellectual property and you know proprietary intellectual property owning. The, uh, the creative output or the control, the patent over the knowledge output. Now it's also data. So that's another layer of, you know, uh, strengthening the those who are already strong. They are actually becoming even stronger. So you have these two forces concurring at the same time. There is potential for, you know, uh, the horizontal platform and for the vertical hierarchies to be even more stronger. Where does this? This is a tension. You know, how do you do that? You can, in one, on the one hand, you can. You can use the technology to mitigate these inequalities. At the same time, the technology can exacerbate those inequalities. It is a decision of, uh, you know, this is a, a policy decision. And this is something that will be determined by the, the policies, by the irrational decision by policymakers. Where do we want to go? So that's the first, uh, the first challenge, the first tension that will shape the discussion. Do we have Policymakers who will really make conscious efforts to use the technology for inclusion, for better health, for better education, for you know safety nets for those who are harmed. It's up to the you know decision maker, perhaps with advocacy uh, from uh, society as well. The second attention is the one I spoke about earlier. It is about the, the mismatch between uh, freedom of expression and civil liberties as opposed to um, economic liberties, which usually will end up targeting the you know the large companies and the, and the neoliberal uh, perspective. This is another quote from the Arab uh, Knowledge Report. Ten years ago it was written, it said, it is not possible to create Arab environments that stimulate knowledge without the existence of an integrated package of freedoms. So this is very important. Freedoms cannot be segmented. You, you know, you read, if you have an integrated approach to freedom, you get integrated set of knowledge outputs. That's what we wrote ten years ago, prior to the Arab uh, Spring. The third uh, tension is actually uh, the technology versus everything else. I mean, uh, usually uh, the, the threat of technological determinism. If you invest in the technology, everything else will follow. This is not, doesn't work this way. You know, there's this obsession with investing in technology and everything will be all right. No, there is you know, need to invest in complementary factors as well and be very careful what is the technology that you are investing in. And that it is, for example, in the case of labor, that it's labor enabling and not replacing whenever that is uh, possible. So uh, the, then the, the threat of uh, technological determinism and decontextualization. It's, it's very dangerous to just take the technology out of context, implant it in a completely uh, uh, unsuitable environment, then the result is not, uh, will work in the opposite direction. So between those three threats, these tensions, they actually highlight that AI can serve both concurrent trends in the economy empowering the established as well as the new entrants. They underline the gap in focus between economic and political and 
exemplify how investment in technology alone without an enabling environment would fail to achieve the desired objective. So in, in conclusion, I argue that uh, you know, a top-down approach that focuses on um, expert technocratic solutions to issues that affect human lives and ones that do not involve participatory approaches can aggravate divides and the exclusion of the underprivileged and the marginalized. So together, the above tensions really inform the debate on AI and inequality, and an awareness of them helps us mitigate the challenges and the threats that AI would exacerbate inequality in the future. Thank you very much.